Our reading this afternoon is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 14 to 24. Then Peter stood with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last, day, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Young men will, will see visions, and old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, as signs in the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of the wicked man, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is the word of God. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we open your word, we ask work in us opening our minds, our hearts, and our wills as you reveal more of yourself and your will to us. Lord, I pray that each of us would hear the word you have to speak to us. And I pray that I would say only that which you would have me speak and nothing that you'd not have me say. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, in whose blood is our only hope. Amen. So back in November, before Advent, uh, we had reached chapter 4 of the book of Acts, uh, but owing to illness, we had missed one vital passage out. Uh, So as we begin this new year, we're going to return and we're going to look at that passage, which is the passage following on from the one that Felipe has just read for us. It's a passage which describes uh, the birth of the church and gives us the foundational description of the life of a local church. So if you have a Bible with you, will you turn with me to Acts chapter 2? And I'm going to begin to read at verse 37. The words will also be on the screen, I think, Um, though I think it's great to have your Bible open as we work our way through the passage today and, in fact, every week. So Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 37. When the people heard what Peter had to say, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, 
and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What does it mean to you to be part of a church? Some of you have joined this church during the pandemic. What was it that made you think, this is the Christian community I should belong to? Others perhaps have been members of this congregation for many years or even many decades. What does belonging to First Baptist Church mean to you? With the pouring out of the Spirit, the beginning of Acts chapter 2 marks the start of a new era in history, the age of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit falls first on Jesus' 120 disciples, and then on 3,000 who receive their message and are baptized and then on all of those down the centuries and across the globe who've been added to that number by God. What does the Holy Spirit do as soon as he's available to fill all people in this way? He makes a church. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He glorifies God the Father and God the Son by convicting people of their sin, and when they repent, and turn to Jesus, he makes churches. The church is the creation of the Spirit. The church is his message of hope to the world. And the description of the first church at the end of Acts chapter 2 inspires us with a vision of what a church can be. But there's a problem. I wonder if you've noticed it. The problem with this passage that we're reading today, a passage that is full of the wonderful things that it means to be part of a church, a passage that should fill us with joy, the problem is that it begins with the words they devoted themselves to. You see, if we want to know all the blessings of being members of a spirit-filled community of followers of Jesus, it's not enough for us to have a casual interest in it. We need to be devoted to it. We need to be devoted to it if we're new to it. And we need to be devoted to it if we've been part of it for many years and we've got very used to it 
and we're very sure what we expect from it. Churches do not thrive. In fact, they don't even survive if those who belong to them are not devoted to them. Christian history is littered with churches that forgot their first love. Richard Longnecker, the New Testament commentator, says that on the day that the church was born, when Jews accepted baptism in the name of Jesus, it was traumatic and significant for them in a way that we, in our mildly Christian culture, have difficulty understanding. That, that public act of humility and commitment that those first believers made when they were baptized that Pentecost day, well, that set the trajectory for their relationships with one another for weeks and months and years to come. The, the bold step of baptism produced a bold commitment to those other people who'd shared in that experience with them. The church that was formed from the 3,000 who were baptized that day was marked by the humble way in which its members acted towards one another and by the deep commitment that they showed to one another. So it really shouldn't be any surprise to us that Luke goes on to say they devoted themselves to the life of the church. And what they devoted themselves to, well, that's what we are going to think about this afternoon. The description of the church that Luke gives here is very concise. In verse 42, he says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, Luke tells us four things that the first Christians were devoted to teaching, fellowship, eating, and prayer. And then in verses 44, 45, and 46, he identifies the particular significances uh, and the forms that these four activities took. He says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And Luke does one other thing in this description of the church. Three times in these six short verses, he talks about the impact of this church on the outside world. Everyone was filled with awe, he says. They enjoyed the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. He's telling us that a church whose members are devoted to these four things, teaching, fellowship, eating, and prayer, that a church like that will be used by God to have a profound influence on the lives of those who encounter it. A church that's devoted to these four things will grow. And the first thing that we're called uh, to be devoted to is the apostles' teaching. Now, what does Luke mean by this? Well, the first examples that we're given of this are the sermons in the book of Acts. The sermons like that of Peter that we've heard another piece of today uh, from Acts chapter 2. Sermons that are filled with the teaching of particular apostles, in this case, Peter. Uh, from Luke's perspective, when he wrote the book of Acts, 
The Gospels were also the teaching of the apostles. Matthew was an apostle. Uh, The Gospel of Mark records the apostle Peter's teaching. Luke's own Gospel was based on the eyewitnesses' accounts of the apostles in Jerusalem. And John was another of the 12 apostles, although his Gospel was not likely written by the time that Luke was writing Acts. So the Gospels are the teaching of the apostles. But so too are the letters that we find in the New Testament. Almost all of them come from the hand of one or another apostle. So in this way, from our perspective, the whole New Testament can rightly be said to be the apostles' teaching. And when we think about devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, we're talking about devoting ourselves to the New Testament. In other words, a thriving church relies on its members being devoted students of the Bible. Which is why when we gather for worship, we do substantial sermon series. We don't just bounce from one subject to another from week to week. We work our way passage by passage through books of the Bible. And it's why Bible study is at the heart of a whole host of different small groups that we have in the church. And if that's not enough Bible teaching for you, then please, please come and speak to me because I'd love to give you more resources to help you to study the Bible. There's nothing I would enjoy more than that. And in fact, in next week's first news, there's going to be a small uh, New Year's gift for every member of the church to help you to read the Bible in this uh, coming year. Now, of course, there's a whole host of benefits that arise from being devoted to studying the New Testament. But Luke points to an interesting and perhaps an unexpected one, unity. Verses 44, 45, and 46 parallel verse 42 and expand on it. And the parallel comment relating to the apostles' teaching is all the believers were together. Now, it's easy for us to read that as if what he means is that all the believers were in one place. But of course, he can't possibly mean that. He can't mean that all 3,000 of them hung out together all the time. Clearly, they didn't because we're told that they met in homes. What Luke is pointing to is actually the unity of the believers. Twice in this passage, he uses the word unanimity of the believers. Being fellow students of the apostles, devoting themselves to learning all that the apostles had to teach them about the life of Jesus and ministry and teachings, about his death and resurrection, all of that brings an equality of status. We are all students, all learners, all disciples. And it also brings a unity of purpose. We are all here in order that we might grow to be more like Jesus. Nobody's above that. Nobody's doing something different. There's a unity in that. And when we recognize that we're all disciples of Jesus, all learners together, when that becomes a fundamental purpose, then we're drawn together as a church. Now, what it's not saying is that we all have to agree on everything. Our unity isn't conformity. Our unity comes from our common desire to learn more about Jesus. Devotion to the study of the New Testament breeds unity 
in the church. The second thing that we're called to be devoted to is fellowship. What this means is close appreciation, sharing, close relationships, communal life. Luke is pointing to an attitude, but also to actions resulting from that attitude. Their fellowship took them beyond meeting in the temple into meeting in one another's homes. Their fellowship took them beyond just friendship into the sharing of their possessions with one another. Uh, Luke's going to have a lot more to say about this as we get into Acts chapter 4. But let me just say a little bit about this sharing of possessions now. This is going to be a big theme for us in these next few weeks. The point is that the commitment of these believers to one another had substance. It wasn't simply being cordial or lending people the occasional helping hand. Verse 45 says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. They didn't just share their stuff, they sacrificed it for one another. Any group that demonstrates love for one another that way has an amazing power to draw others. We were made by God for community and devoted community. Well, it's irresistible. Now, let me say something about this phrase, they had everything in common. People are sometimes worried that this is a call to a a communist style of collective ownership, that everyone sold everything and combined the proceeds. Clearly, that's not what went on, because in Acts chapter 4, we're told that from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. The point is, sometime later, people still have personal possessions that they can choose to sell. What we need to understand, I think, is that first century Jewish ideas of public and private property were not as mutually exclusive as they are in the present day. Eckhart Schnabel, uh, his uh, commentary is absolutely wonderful on Acts. I'm so grateful for it. Eckhart Schnabel uh, says, property that an individual had could be understood to be both for the individual and for the group. People remained owners of their property while being willing to use their possessions for the common good. What we must be aware of, though, is using that as an excuse for hanging on to what we've been blessed with. Oh, oh, it's, it's available to anyone. Of course, nobody else ever uses it or has access to it, really. In, Luke, in Acts chapter 4, uh, Luke says... No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. There was a real sense in which a surrender of personal possessions had been made before God for the benefit of others in the church. This was an expression of fellowship, real practical care for one another, especially for those in need. This was a tangible sign of their changed relationships with one another. They were no longer connected simply by virtue of having been born Jewish. They were now brothers and sisters in Christ. The possessions that were sold included land and houses, which shows you that some of the believers were quite wealthy. There wasn't a redistribution of property among them. 
Those who were wealthy sold property when necessary to provide for those who had nothing. All of this was voluntary. It was simply that the needs of the poor in the church came before the right to personal wealth. Just take that phrase in for a moment. The needs of the poor in the church came before the right to personal wealth. If we really lived that out, wouldn't that revolutionize us? Just that one truth? Now, in our own day, I have to say, I think it is quite difficult for us to practice this. And one of the reasons that it's difficult in our self-sufficient culture is communication. Those of us who have needs, and at many times in my life that's been me, we find it difficult to ask. And those who have more than they need and would like to give find it difficult to know where to give. We know that there are people in need, but we just don't know who to give to in the church or how to do that in a, in a private way or in an appropriate way. Well, I want to tell you, in this church, we have a way to tackle this problem. It's called the pastors. One of the functions of the pastors is to connect those who have more than they need or an excess with those who have less than they need. But we can't do that, of course, unless both of these groups let us know that that's the case. So feel free to talk to the pastors whichever end of that you're on. That's how we'll, we'll facilitate this sharing in our own church. Now the point of all of this is to show that devotion to fellowship is more than an attitude. It is an action, and it involves a radical rethinking of our relationships with one another. The third thing that we're called to is, to be devoted to rather, is eating. Literally, Luke says, the breaking of the loaf. Now, we tend to read that as a reference to the Lord's Supper and the communion, and that's certainly a part of it. But remember, when Jesus instigated the Eucharist at the Last Supper, it was part of a real meal. So in verse 46, we read, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. These were ordinary meals in which this symbolic remembrance of Jesus' death began to emerge as a special feature, a kind of a center for that meal. These celebratory meals in which people were enjoying their newfound family in Christ, they were happening in homes, and they were also happening in huge gatherings in the temple itself. It's really no wonder that other people were drawn to this group of believers, is it? The subject of the sentence in verses 46 and 47 is eating, in case you're wondering why I'm saying eating and not breaking of bread. Eating is the main thing. I have a, a slide to show you. This is the sentence broken down. I think we've got it. There we go. Hopefully you can read that. That's the sentence broken down into its parts. The literal translation of the words. It's from Eckhart Schnabel's commentary. And you can see when he breaks the verse down that the center of the sentence is eating. 
That's the point Luke is getting at here. That's what he's emphasizing for us, that eating together is faith-building, church-building activity. Now, when we uh, had the uh, prayers from the Northumbria community, which is where I come from, I know uh, people who wrote those prayers. Um, incidentally, they were Baptist pastors mostly. Um, that, uh, the, the words that Krista shared with us there about um, uh, the, the, the good and the, the, the strong and the, um, and the positive and the surrender of, of other things too, all of that together... I think it's important that we, that we acknowledge that that, that, that truth is it's very deep. Sometimes the things that Christ calls us to, I forget exactly the words that you use, Krista, but sometimes the things that Christ calls us to are very comfortable for us. Sometimes they're very difficult for us. But often when they're comfortable for us, we're not, we're not happy with that. We feel it can't really be godly. And this idea of eating together as being as one of the four fundamentals of the church, it just, well, that seems like too much fun, right? How could we do that? How could that be building us in Christ? But I promise you, that's what Luke is saying here. That really is the, the, the heart of uh, the church, a part of the heart of the church. It may seem odd to you. It doesn't sound as spiritual as being... Uh, devoted to the study of the New Testament. But I really do wonder whether we've got that wrong. There is so much to celebrate about being followers of Jesus. And God made human beings to celebrate with food, didn't he? Remember the picture that the Bible gives us of the, the final coming of God's kingdom. What is it? It's a wedding feast. Now think of all the times in the Old Testament when we're told about sitting down at the Lord's banqueting table or all the times Jesus describes the kingdom of God as a banquet. See, eating together isn't just fun. It is a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It's a pointer to the abundant way that our God has provided for us. Devotion to breaking bread together is a reminder that we, the church, are the people of God's coming kingdom. Well, the fourth and final thing that we're called to be devoted to by the example of the Jerusalem church is prayer. Literally, Luke says the prayers, plural. That implies not only the spontaneous prayers that we know from these early chapters of Acts, but also regular prayers like the recitation of the Shema or, or prayers from the Psalms. Perhaps this is where many people would have learned to pray the Lord's Prayer. Regular prayers that the believers would pray through over and over again as they learned how to relate more deeply to the living God. It seems that what would happen would be huge crowds of the believers would gather each day in the temple courts in a place called Solomon's Portico. Uh, this is a large area, about 650 feet long and 50 feet wide, with two rows of huge columns 43 feet high on either side. And they probably gathered at 3 p.m., which was the Jewish hour of prayer, and then after it they would stay on celebrating and eating together afterwards. 
And in this way, uh, the first church fulfilled Jesus' desire that the temple become again a house of prayer instead of a den of robbers. Luke indicates in verse 47 that their prayers were particularly marked with praise. I don't know about you, but I think we tend not to be very good at praising God in corporate prayer. We find it much easier to share and to pray for prayer requests, to ask things of God, rather than to praise him for who he is and for what he's done for us. I think developing the habit of praising God together in prayer, as well as through worship songs, I think that's something that we need to work on. As in many of the Psalms, it's when we remind ourselves of the goodness of God by praising him that we often find the answers to our deepest problems. We remind ourselves that we can trust in his sovereignty over our lives. But deep prayer especially deep communal prayer, does not just happen. We have to learn how to do it. It requires discipline and it requires time. It requires participating in prayer meetings. Praying together is something we have to learn to do. We don't just come and think, wow, this is great, this is fantastic. It's not a drag race. It's a prayer meeting. And it takes time to learn how to share your prayerful relationship with God with other people. And it takes time to understand how their relationship with God in prayer works. It takes commitment. As much as sharing or selling property for others might be challenging for us, praying with them might be challenging as well. And that's why Luke says they devoted themselves to it. It takes devotion. It takes effort. But devotion to prayer and praise transforms us more and more into the likeness of the one we're praying to. All of these four things that the first church in Jerusalem devoted themselves to, teaching, fellowship, eating, and prayer, all of these four things had consequences. These joyful, informal, food-centered times of teaching, prayer, worship, and sharing drew others. And the Holy Spirit brought those others to a conviction of their need to be saved from their sin by Jesus. And he added more of them each day to the church. So this summary of the church's life ends by saying, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Being saved and being added are inseparable. Those people who say, I'm a Christian, but church really isn't important to my faith, they're wrong. Everything in the New Testament makes it clear that the local church is vital to the life of the believer. In fact, the New Testament knows nothing whatsoever of believers who are not part of a local church. However difficult we may find it to be part of a local church, it's essential to the Christian faith, not optional. When we're saved, at that moment, we're added by the Holy Spirit to the church of Jesus Christ. And that takes tangible form in commitment to a local church. So by way of conclusion today, if you'll permit me a few more moments, I'd like to say a word or two here about church membership. 
As a, as a young Christian in my teens, I attended an Anglican church. When I left school aged 18 and began to work in a church, it was a Baptist church. And I noticed something rather odd. The Anglican church, well, that was much more formal with liturgical services, vicars, rectors, bishops, ordained clergy leading everything, and denominational authority over every church. And with the Baptists, each church was independent. Uh, services could be in any form. Uh, anyone could lead worship, preach a sermon, preside over the Lord's table. Uh, it, was, it was, as it was described on the tin, free church. And yet, it was the Baptists, not the Anglicans, who had formal church membership. What was that about? What made this more difficult to understand was that I soon picked up the false impression of church membership that I think many, if not most people have, that it simply means the right to vote in church meetings. Of course, it's nothing of the sort. In fact, church membership goes right to the heart of the nature of the local church. Throughout Christian history, there's been three primary ways of understanding what makes a church a church. What makes a church a church? The first is called apostolic succession. In this view, uh, the church exists wherever there's a leader, usually a priest, who stands in the line of apostolic succession. What does that mean? It means that they've been appointed, usually by the laying on of hands, by somebody who themselves was appointed, who was appointed by someone who was appointed, and so on and so on and so forth, right back through the centuries to the apostles themselves. The laying on of hands has gone on through an unbroken chain, eventually to a given priest today. And a local church, in this view, is a group of people gathered around this apostolically appointed person. That's one view of the church. That's the view that you would find in the Roman Catholic Church, for example. A second view is that the church exists wherever the Word of God is rightly proclaimed and the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, are rightly administered. That's the understanding of the church that dominates in the mainline churches, Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, united. The problem, of course, is what is the right proclamation of the word and the right administration of the sacraments. And the result of the debates and disagreements over these questions is the more than 200,000 different Christian denominations and groups that we see around the world today. But there is a third view of the nature of the church, which is one we as a Baptist church hold. And that is that the local church is a covenant community. It's a group of believers in Jesus who have agreed to follow him together. That covenant, whether it's a written one or simply just a shared understanding, that covenant is something that we've opted into. We've chosen to be committed to one another as followers of Jesus. And it's this view of the nature of the church, what makes a church a church, that it's a group of believers covenanting together to follow Jesus Christ, 
It's this view of the nature of the church that's the reason that Baptists have membership. Now, once I came to realize that, I started to recognize that this view of the church is implied or directly stated all over the New Testament. In the book of Acts, where we're told several times that the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. That was in our passage today. That is, there was an actual number. They knew who was in the church and who was not. There was an actual number of people who were added to that existing actual number of members. And we see another example of this in something like the the distribution of the food to widows in Acts chapter 6. The believers don't just distribute uh, food to any widow. They know who is a member of the community and who is not. And while, of course, we're, we're always supposed to be practicing love of neighbor to those outside of the church, they have a specific system for caring for the widows who are members of the church, you see? Now, just as significant as these examples of membership that we see in Acts and and also in the epistles are the the metaphors, the images that the New Testament uses for the church. Think about them for a moment. The church is pictured as branches in a vine, as members of a family, brothers, sisters, mothers, as stones in a building, as the parts of a human body. What all of these images have in common is that none of them allows for attendees. You can't be an attendee branch in a vine. You can't be an attendee member of a family. You can't have a brick that's an optional participant in a building. You can't have a a visiting limb in your body. All of these images that Jesus, Peter, and Paul use, they all involve membership. Attendance is what is not known in the New Testament, except, except as an introductory stage. It's perfectly normal as an introductory stage, but it's supposed to be an introductory stage, attendance. What the New Testament calls for is what I've been talking about this afternoon. Devotion to the life of your local church. There is no Christian life without the church. As much as we may struggle with the church, we may have been hurt by the church, we may have been disappointed. It would be unusual if you had never been hurt or offended or disappointed by another Christian. You may have been frustrated with the church, You may very well be frustrated with the church or with me as you sit there today. But as much as we may struggle with the church, there is no Christian life without church. We cannot remain healthy disciples of Jesus if we turn on our back on it. So why would we not give it our all, give it our best? There's an old illustration I'm sure that some of you will have heard of many, many times. It's a coal in the fire. When a piece of coal falls out of the fire, it gradually cools. It cannot stay alight for long on its own. Now, it's an old illustration, but it's stuck around because it's true. In most circumstances, without the church, our faith 
gradually cools. So let me invite you to reflect again on your devotion to this church, or if you're visiting us today, to the church you belong to. And let me invite you to become a member if you're not already one. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you that you have saved us and made us part of your church, added us, and part of this church in particular. Thank you, Lord, for all of the ways that we've been blessed by this church and perhaps by other churches that we belong to. And yet we also acknowledge that much of the time we don't experience all that the church can be because we only have one foot in the church. The other foot remains firmly planted in the world or perhaps in a private faith the Bible knows nothing of. Lord, we confess that we can come to the church not to give ourselves wholeheartedly to it, but really looking for what the church can do for us. We recognize there are seasons for all of us when we must receive more than we can give, and that's one of the great blessings of belonging to your church. But today, we recognize that the picture that this very first description of the church gives us is a picture of devotion to one another. Thank you for the invitation today to be part of that, Lord. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to enable us to grow in our devotion to the church, to the Bible, to fellowship, to eating together, and to prayer. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus that we might add to the preparation of your bride. Amen. Now, let me just say one thing. I have spoken very directly about things to do with the church today, and I'm certain there'll be people here who are, or who are watching who are frustrated because there was a nuance they didn't hear or, or something they disagreed with or whatever. Please, come and talk to me about it. Send me an email. Let's have a conversation about it. Don't go grumbling to somebody else. Challenge me. Maybe I'm wrong. Thank you. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.